Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. New year, new leaders. History-making officials begin the transition to power. Progress is not inevitable, but progress is possible. How will they govern? Maryland Democratic Governor-elect Wes Moore joins me exclusively in moments. And all wrapped up, the January 6th committee completes its work. Now its two Republican committee members are leaving Congress. I'm here to investigate January 6th, not in spite of my membership in the Republican Party, but because of it. Did they make their case and change their party's future? Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger will be here exclusively. Plus, making way. Top House Democratic leaders stepped aside for the next generation. Have you heard I was 83? Our exclusive interview with outgoing House Democratic Majority Leader Steny Hoyer ahead. Hello, I'm Dana Bash in Washington, where the state of our union is wishing you a happy new year. It is Sunday, January 1st, 2023, and we hope you're enjoying a restful holiday. Here in Washington this week, reality is going to set in quickly. On Tuesday, House Republicans will take control of the chamber and try to elect a speaker, and that could take a while. House Republicans are also planning to launch a slate of investigations into the Biden administration as Washington begins to adjust to divided government. There will be new faces in Congress and in state houses across the country, where you're going to see a lot of changes this month. There will be 12 women governors, two governors who are openly gay. And in Maryland, voters elected only the third black man ever to lead a state. Governor-elect Wes Moore is a veteran of the war in Afghanistan and a Rhodes Scholar who beat a Trump-backed Republican and flipped Maryland State House blue on his very first run for office. Now he is trying to tackle income inequality and rewrite narratives about what the Democratic Party stands for. Here with me now is incoming Maryland Governor Wes Moore. Thank you so much uh, for joining me. Appreciate it. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you, too. Great to be with you. Thank you. You, too. You're not quite in office yet. That'll be in 17 days. What is going to be your top priority on day one? Well, we're, we're going to go in and really focus on the thing that we spoke with the people of Maryland about, that this is about economics. Uh, and we are going to work on creating pathways for work, wages and wealth. And, and that means we're going to for work. It means we're going to have an education system that is uh, going to going to teach our students how not just to be employees, but how to be employers. And we are going to push through in this legislative session, uh, making Maryland the first state in this country that will have a service year option for every high school graduate for wages. It means that we are going to ensure that people can have good wages for the jobs that they have because we still have too many people in the state that are working jobs and in some cases multiple jobs and still living below a poverty line. And for wealth, 
it means we're going to focus on assets, making sure that people can own more than they owe. And that includes things like attacking the racial wealth gap, which in this country, uh, the racial wealth gap has cost this country $16 trillion over the past two decades in GDP. We've got to focus on that, and Maryland is going to lead. You just mentioned some of your priorities. You've also proposed free pre-K for Maryland children in need, a statewide family leave program, state-level child care tax credit, minimum wage hike. Inflation is still pretty high. The economy is pretty volatile. You have a state where a balanced budget is required. So how will you pay for these programs? Yeah. Well, one thing we're going to do is, uh, first, the best way to deal with it is we've got to get people back to work. Uh, and right now, if you look at the state of Maryland, uh, the state of Maryland was ranking 47th in the country in unemployment. Mm -hmm. And right now, if you look at the state of Maryland, we have two available jobs for every single person filing for unemployment. And people say, well, how does that make sense? Is It makes sense because we have a dynamic economy. We're just not preparing people to participate in that dynamic economy. So we've got to focus on things like job retraining, job reskilling, fixing a broken childcare system, and getting people back to work. And also, we know we do have a unique opportunity in the state where you have capital that's coming in from the federal government, and we also have severe inefficiencies that are taking place in the way that capital is being distributed. So we can actually go and create measurements of economic growth without having to work, worry about or focus on things like raising taxes. Uh, we can actually do this by fixing inefficiencies, leveraging the capital that's already there, and getting people back to work who will participate in the economy. So you're confident that you can pay for all of the programs that you uh, have in your uh, sort of in your toolbox that you plan to, to put into effect without raising taxes? I'm, I'm, I'm very confident in that. And, you know, as as a leader, I am data driven and heart led. Uh, I wear my heart on my sleeve and I acknowledge that. But I don't move without data. And every single one of the policies that we're pushing forward and, and, and making sure that is going to be a commonplace in the state of Maryland are policies that we know that not data, it's not only the data backs them up, but is that we have an economic process and an economic pathway to make them real and benefit all Marylanders. You will be Maryland's first black governor, the state attorney general, treasurer, and the House Speaker, all black. We haven't really seen this kind of concentration of state-level black leadership anywhere else in the country. Talk about the significance of this, particularly in a state like Maryland, which is diverse. It, it is remarkable, uh, and, and I'm proud of, of, of the history uh, that, that I'm going to make in this race of being the state's first black governor. Uh, and also, I'm proud of it because I know how complicated the racial history uh, is in the state of Maryland and how complicated the racial history in the United States is. Uh, this Maryland is the state of, of Harriet Tubman mm -hmm. and Frederick Douglass and, and Thurgood Marshall. Uh, but I also know that, uh, that the reason that I am now days away from becoming uh, Maryland's 63rd governor is not only because black folks voted for me. If you look at what happened in our race, we won more individual votes than any person who's ever run for governor in the state of Maryland. The vote margin, the win margin that we had was the largest that the state of Maryland has seen in a governor's race in 40 years. We won, the, we won places in the Eastern Shore, places in Western Maryland, uh, where we had won more, more individual votes than any Democrat who was run in 16 of the 24 jurisdictions in the state mm. of Maryland. And so I think we saw that people are focused on not just, they, they were focused and they were supportive of us in a historic way, not just because they wanted me to make history, 
but because they knew that together we could actually build a state that everyone could believe in and everyone could thrive in. That it wasn't about me making history, it was about the fact that we were focusing on policies that can make their lives better. During your campaign, you said that the idea of patriotism has been co-opted by Republicans. What do you mean when you say that and how do you change it? You know, I, I love this country. And I have fought for this country, and I will keep on fighting for this country. And I know that I come from a family of patriots, uh, where I come from a family of ministers and school teachers and, 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 and operating engineers and people who built this country with their hands. And I define patriotism uh, when, I, when I left my family and I deployed with the 82nd Airborne Division to Afghanistan, wearing the uniform of this country. I am a patriot. I was raised by patriots, and I refuse to let anyone lecture me about what it means to be a patriot, particularly when their definition of patriotism was helping to storm a capital on January 6th. And I think we need to be aggressive on this, that our country is worth fighting for. But fighting for your country does not mean hating half of the people in it. And when we talk about patriotism, it means an ability to be able to lift everyone up, to fight for each other, to believe in each other, to believe that our country is great because we are inclusive. And so I think it's incredibly important. We saw that in the state of Maryland where we ran on that and we saw overwhelmingly that Democrats, independents and Republicans and Republicans believed in our vision about what it means to be a patriot. And we will stand by that and continue to lead with that as our foundation. You alluded to the fact that you did serve in the military, particularly in the war in Afghanistan. And now House Republicans are saying that they're going to launch an investigation into the drawdown from that war. Is that a topic worthy of investigation in Congress? I, I, I think about uh, the, the role and the job that Congress has uh, coming on board. We've got very real economic headwinds uh, that we're continuing to navigate that us in the state level, that we're focused on things like public safety and making sure that people feel safe in their own neighborhoods and children can feel safe in their own skin. You know, we're focused on ensuring that we can have economic competitiveness and jobs uh, that, are coming, uh, that are coming to our communities, our neighborhoods that are paying a fair wage so people don't have to be working multiple jobs and still living at or below a poverty line. You know, we're focusing on ensuring that we can have an education system that's preparing our children for the jobs of now and for the so jobs is of tomorrow. So is this a no uh, on Republicans? I do not think that the people... I, I do not think that the people of the state of Maryland are, 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 are want the Republican Party to spend their time or want Congress spending their time talking about the drawdown in Afghanistan. Uh, they want them focusing on the issues that are facing them right now. You uh, mentioned the Republicans several times. You're succeeding a Republican, a, a pretty popular moderate Republican, not somebody uh, who supported uh, the uh, the, the Trump administration sort of and a lot of the things that they uh, that the former president said uh, that led to the lies and led to the insurrection on January 6th. But when it comes to Maryland, are you taking any lessons from Larry Hogan, even though he is across the aisle? You know, I, I, I appreciate the, the fact that the uh, that the, the governor uh, you know, he was very against the MAGA movement from from its inception for for years. He's been calling the, the MAGA movement, uh, calling it dangerous, which it is. And I, and I thank him, and I thank him for that. Uh, the thing that I also know, though, is that our state needs to move fast. 
Our state needs to be bold. And I think the state of Maryland is ready to do big things again, uh, like creating a service year option for every single high school graduate, which we are going to get done in this legislative session. So I'm, I'm thankful for the fact that in Governor Hogan, uh, he really has uh, ensured that we're going to have a, an orderly and a smooth transition on January 18th. Uh, and I'm ready to get to work on January 19th. I know you haven't been sworn in as governor yet, but I have to ask, your name is is out there as a potential presidential contender someday. I'm not saying tomorrow, someday. Would you be interested in that? I'm, I'm very excited to make this Maryland's decade. Uh, I, I, I am not interested. I am. I, I'm very excited for, uh, for for President Biden to to uh, to uh, run for reelection. We are going to support him. I'm thankful for the uh, for the for the amount of times he's come to Maryland. We have a lot of partnerships that we are going to get done and we're going to need to have a strong federal partner in Maryland to ensure that this is going to be Maryland's decade. Uh, and I'm committed to ensuring that the state of Maryland is going to going to sprint ahead and this will be Maryland's time. Okay, well, Governor-elect of Maryland, Westmore, thank you so much, and again, Happy New Year. Thank you so much, and Happy New Year. After serving in House Democratic leadership for two decades, he is stepping down. Steny Hoyer gives us a tour of his Capitol office before he moves out and talks about what's next for him in the new Congress as a rank-and-file congressman for Maryland. And he took on his own party over the events of January 6th. Now he's on his way out after a dozen years in Congress. Congressman Adam Kinzinger is here next. Welcome back to State of the Union. This Friday is the two-year anniversary of the January 6th attacks. The events of that day led to criminal prosecutions and played a role, a pretty big one, in the midterm elections. They also changed the careers of two House Republicans who chose to serve on the January 6th committee. And largely as a result of that patriotic service, they both are now leaving Congress. Joining me now is the outgoing Republican congressman of Illinois, Adam Kinzinger. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Let's start with the work that you've been doing over the past almost two years, the January 6th committee. It's over. And it's now in the hands of the Justice Department. Do you think that President Trump ultimately will be charged for crime? Look, I mean, when I got into this, when we started this process, I didn't know, you know, I'm not a lawyer, not a Justice Department guy, didn't necessarily know, is he guilty of a crime or not? Obviously, what he did from a presidential perspective, from an oath perspective, is a problem. As we've gotten into this, I look and I'm like, yeah, if, if this is not a crime, I don't know what is. If, if a president can incite an insurrection and not be held accountable, then really there's no limit to what a president can do or can't do. And so, yeah, I do, I do think ultimately when we get to where we're going to go, I think the Justice Department will do the right thing. I think he will be charged. And I frankly think he should be. I mean, everything we've uncovered from what he did with the Justice Department, to everything leading up to January 6th, to on January 6th, sitting there for 180 minutes and watching this occur in the hope that maybe, just maybe, that last attempt to stay in power will work. So he should be charged and convicted. That's, so that's my personal opinion. It's not from a, uh, from well, a lawyer or Justice Department. the that you've been collecting. Yes, and it appears, like, I look at that and I go, if he is not guilty of a crime, then I I frankly fear for the future of this country because now every future president can say, hey, here's the bar. And the bar is do everything you can to stay in power. You talk about the, the future of this country. 
as you are uh, on your way out and uh, leaving Congress behind, are you optimistic or fearful for American democracy? It's <sighs> a tough question. So typically I'm always optimistic. I try to be. You can't do this job if you're not. I'm a little fearful in the short term. You know, we're in a moment where facts don't really matter. What matters to people is just uh, what your opinion is, and the facts that, that comport to that matter. We're in, a, we're in a moment where about half the country believes there are, that the election was stolen. Maybe a third of the country now believes the election was stolen. But if you're in a democracy and you believe that your vote doesn't count, that's dangerous. So in the short term, I'm, I'm a little pessimistic. But I am, in the long term, very optimistic for this country because I look back at trends. I look back at rough times we have been in, and we've always come out, and we haven't just come out of them, we've come out stronger. So look, democracies are not defined by bad days, we're defined by how we come out of those bad days. And so in the long term, I am optimistic, but I, I gotta say to people, this is not a moment to rest. This is a moment where you have to understand there have to be uncomfortable alliances to defend democracy. Um, but we can do this. If you had a way back machine uh-huh. and could go back a couple of years and tell the congressman, Adam Kinzinger, of, um, I don't know, the, just the 2020 election, <sighs> uh, what you would be doing for the two years following, would you say, yeah, go for it? Would you have done anything differently? I, you know, it's, it's a great question because I get asked that a lot. Like, you know, would you have done it differently? Obviously, there's, there's been some sacrifice and everything in it. I wouldn't do one thing differently. Look, I, you know, the way this has kind of gone in the last couple of years, it's been tough, right? You know, I've had extended family that sent me letters telling me I was working on behalf of Satan. I mean, that's not something I could have imagined. You had imagined. members of your family saying yeah. that? Yeah, I mean, and it's not, nothing I could have imagined, you know, a couple of years ago. But what that does to me is it reminds me of just how bad of a place we've gotten to. And, you know, everybody in their life, and I was no different when I was a young guy. You know, you always imagine a moment where you can stand alone and where you're like the one person that, that can do the right thing in a crowd, right? Everybody imagines this moment. Very few people get a chance to actually do that. And I've learned in this job that very few of those that get the chance actually do it. Um, I feel honored to have been at this moment in history and to have done the right thing. You know, my kids are going to be proud of it. That's something that I take very seriously. And uh, yeah, I wouldn't have done anything different. When Congress is sworn in in two days, you're getting a little emotional. Sorry. <laughs> Just a little. Yeah. Is this tough for you? Yeah. I think it's, it's... So I'm not going to miss the job. I'm glad I'm not going to be back. It gives me time to focus on broader things, bigger fights. But it is, it, I like... You know, thinking of Adam Kinzinger when he's 32, kind of the new freshman, uh, you know, kind of like optimistic and bright-eyed to where we are today. It's, it's, it's an emotional thing because it's 12 years of my life, right? And, you know, I, I got into this single. Now I'm married with a kid. So I, I can think about that legacy. Um, it's been a heck of a ride. Sure has. Oh, I was going to ask if you are going to be sad not to be part of the next Congress in a couple of days. No. <laughs> I, I won't. Look, I, you know, it's, it's, I want to still be able to have an opinion, right? So that's going to be tough is, I think, adjusting to the fact that people will have less interest in what you have to say. Um, but it's a tough time in Congress right now. I mean, it is, I'm looking at what this is shaping out to be. And I know the tough things we have gone through 
uh, in the past. This is going to be a really tough year. What does it say about the future of your party, the Republican Party, that Marjorie Taylor Greene and people (laughs) like her are kind of ascendant and the Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney's of the world are no longer in the in the Congress? I I think it says to me that the Republican Party is not the future of this country unless it corrects, right? Unless there's a change. Because I got to tell you, uh, if you think of a successful America in 20 years, that's not going to be an America based on what Marjorie Taylor Greene wants or based on what some of these radicals want. The only way this country can succeed is if we learn to work together. We once called Kevin McCarthy a true friend. Yeah. If you could sit him down, just the two of you, right now, what would you say? I'd just let him know I'm disappointed. Right? I mean, he has, he as a leader, not just a member of Congress, as a leader of Congress, he had an opportunity to tell the truth to the American people. And he went to Mar a Lago a couple weeks after January 6th and resurrected Donald Trump. He is the reason Donald Trump is still a factor. He is the reason that um, some of the crazy elements of the House still exist. If he didn't go down there, you think Trump would have been iced out? I do. I do. I think, I think first off, had we actually remove Trump from office during impeachment, that would have been huge, right? So that's on McConnell and and some of the Republicans in the Senate. But yeah, I think the second, because I lived it, the second Kevin McCarthy went to Mar-a-Lago, the conference went from like, quiet, what are we going to do? Where are we going to go? To begrudgingly defending Donald Trump again. He is responsible. Actually, Donald Trump should consider Kevin McCarthy his best friend because Donald Trump is alive today politically because of Kevin McCarthy. Last year, you told the Huffington Post you would love to go up against Trump in the 2024 primary. You said, quote, I think it'd be fun. It would be fun. Are you going to run for president? No, it's not my intention, no. But it would be fun to run against him because he stands up and just lies. He tells untruths. People love it because it's entertaining. But eventually, people have a concern for their country. So, no, my intention is not to run in 2024. Um, But it would be fun. It would be fun to stand on a stage with Donald Trump and actually tell the truth because when he's on a stage, it's nothing but lies that come out. Well, no matter what you do, I don't think that this is the last that we're going to hear from Adam Kinzinger. Thank you so much, and thank you for your service. You're obviously also uh, in the the military. So thank you for that and, and everything that you've done in Congress as well. You bet. Thank you. President Biden is deciding early this year whether to run again. So coming up, two presidential campaign veterans will talk about what they think he'll say and how voters will respond. And my next guest is a top Democrat who just decided to step back from his role in leadership. My interview with House Democratic leader Steny Hoyer is next. I think this was reported said, you know, why are you retiring? Well, first of all, I'm not retiring. But my sort of flip answer is, have you heard I was 83? Welcome back to State of the Union. Republicans are taking control of the House on Tuesday. And their first public act may be pretty messy, and that's the battle for Speaker, which makes what happened with House Democratic leaders just a month ago seem even more remarkable. The three top House Democrats all moved aside to let the new generation take over. I spoke with longtime Majority Leader Steny Hoyer of Maryland about that transition and about the legacy he's most proud of. For the first time in more than three decades, you will no longer be a member of the Democratic leadership in this coming Congress. 
And when reporters asked you how you felt after that announcement, you replied, quote, not good. Have you gotten used to the idea? Well, it, first of all, the question implied, how do you feel? Oh, okay. And we were not in the majority. I see. And I didn't feel good about that. But I feel good about my decision. I feel good about uh, doing what I'm going to do on the, on the Appropriations Committee. And very frankly, I think I'll be part of leadership in one sense or, or, or another. How so? Well, I think uh, Mr. Jeffries and I have talked. I think he wants me to continue uh, to give advice and counsel and to be involved in decision-making, uh, albeit not as majority leader. It was truly stunning the way that you and your fellow leaders handed over the reins kind of in one foul swoop to the next generation. Can you walk me through those discussions that led to that moment? Well, first of all, it was not a coordinated effort. It wasn't? I think all of us uh, have been around for some time and pretty much have a, a feel for the timing of decisions. And I think all three of us felt uh, that this was a, a time. We'd been, after all, a team of three for 20 years uh, running, probably the longest running team, I don't know whether in history, but for a long time. And uh, in that capacity, uh, I think each of us made an individual decision. The timing was right. What was your thought process, frankly, your emotional process, in getting to the point where you said, I'm not going to run for Democratic leader again? Well, you know, a reporter uh, in front of the Capitol, I think this was reported, said, you know, why are you retiring? Well, first of all, I'm not retiring. But I, I, my sort of flip answer is, have you heard I was 83? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Most people retire 65 or 70 or 72. Uh, God has been really good to me. My health has been good. Uh, I think I've operated at the level that I've operated at for the last 20 years, the uh, last year, and continued to do so. Uh, but it, there, there was a time, and uh, it wasn't a difficult decision in that sense. You came into public service as Boy Wonder. <laughs> uh, you were in the Maryland State Senate. Just a few years later, you were, were elected here to Congress. That's actually how you were known. You were known as Boy Wonder. Well, in between that time of being elected to the State Senate, I was president of the Senate, uh, the youngest ever. And that was a significant training ground for me uh, because I spent 12 years in the State Senate. So when I came to the Congress, I, I'm pretty well experienced in the legislative process. And uh, became part of the leadership about five years after that. To be precise, in your time in Congress, you sponsored 4,237 bills. <laughs> More than 500 have become law. It's not a bad record. Not a bad record. Uh, I didn't know that. <laughs> those figures are new to me, and I'm sure we'll use those figures. But uh, <laughs> You're welcome. You, you, thank your researcher for me. I'm proud. Madam Speaker, to have worked for so long. I was the sponsor, as you know, of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Thousands of people, wherever I go, coming up to me and say, you know, it has really made a difference in my life or the life of my daughter or son or husband or wife or mom. And many other pieces of legislation I've been involved in, like the Affordable Care Act. I mean, affecting millions of people in a positive way. You go back a long way <laughs> with Speaker Nancy Pelosi. I do. You were interns together in the office of Daniel Brewster in the 1960s. I think that story doesn't get enough play 
Nancy was sitting in the front office as receptionist, and I was sitting uh, right behind her in sort of a little divided half uh, wall, handling uh, academy appointments, opening mail, doing things that interns do or part-time employees do. And we were there together. And uh, in uh, some 40 years later, we became the speaker and the, the majority leader. The other story about the Pelosi-Horger relationship is that it is a complicated one. <laughs> you ran against each other for WHIP in 2001. She endorsed your opponent in your race for leader uh, in 2006. How would you describe that relationship? I think we have a very respectful relationship. I think we have a, a business-like re relationship. But I like Nancy, I, and I, I admire Nancy uh, greatly. Uh, she is an extraordinary human being. Uh, she's indefatigable. She has extraordinary energy. She has an extraordinary memory uh, uh, for what we have done and a vision of what we ought to do. Uh, and I think she's probably the most effective political leader that I've worked with uh, over years. I was obviously disappointed when she, when I was uh, running for majority leader and she supported uh, my opponent. Uh, and pretty strongly so, as you recall. But of course, uh, I won pretty handily, as you recall. If there was no Nancy Pelosi in the picture, would you have liked to have been speaker? Sure. <laughs> who wouldn't? Who, who, what politician in the House of Representatives uh, would not like to be the speaker? And of course I would. But uh, very frankly, as I remarked to one reporter, I said, I, I'm not sure I could have done a better job than Nancy, and maybe not as good a job as Nancy. You seem to have a pretty good relationship with Kevin McCarthy. Working, working good relationship. I have a working relationship with Kevin McCarthy, yes. Do you think he's going to get the votes to be speaker? You know, I would be surprised if he doesn't. You think So you think he will be speaker? I, 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 my expectation, he'll be speaker. Does he have what it takes to do the job? Uh, we'll, we'll see. Uh, he obviously is... If he gets 218 votes, uh, has the uh, ability to put together uh, the votes to be the leader of the party, and he will then be tested as to whether or not he can lead. Uh, but, um, you know, he's, he's worked pretty hard at it. He, he, he got close to the Holy Grail, and he had to step back. But he didn't give up. He kept going, and it appears to me that he will be the speaker. Do you think you'll run for re-election in 2024? I may. I may. You're not ruling it out? No. You're not on the exit ramp yet? No. This is my conference room. Congressman Hoyer gave us a tour of this office, the leader's office in the Capitol that he will now be moving out of. Everybody in this room, save one, is a Marylander. The only non-Marylander is my buddy, John Lewis. There are many pictures of his good friend, the late Congressman John Lewis. Walking across the bridge. I've served with two historic figures, John Lewis and Nancy Pelosi. Wow. Yeah, they're the two that will be most remembered by history. Mm. The rest of us have played a part, <laughs> but they will be viewed as giant figures. The other tragic history here, January 6th. This picture of John Lewis outside the door, destroyed. It was torn up. It was damaged. So we got a new one. We put it right back up the next day. This is the door to my office. They break, broke this door in. It's not very strong and very frankly has not yet been fully re 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 re
But the good news is, if there's any good news, is for whatever reason, they didn't damage the office. But a really terrifying thing happened because there were 12 members of my staff who were in this office at that time. And they went into this office, which is an interior office. What was that day like for you? Well, you know, different than, than most of the members because Nancy and I and Clyburn, McCarthy, McConnell, Scalise, what the, the Capitol Police directive is to get us out of harm's way as quickly as possible so there'd be a continuity of leadership. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I walked out into the speaker's lobby with my, the head of my detail. And I said, what's, what's going on? And the chilling words were, the Capitol has been breached. So we knew this was very serious. My mother gave me this. The outgoing majority leader also keeps reminders here of why he started in politics. You got into politics because you saw him speak. That's the first time I saw him. I got so inspired. I changed from business to government politics. The next week, decided I was going to law school and get in politics. Seven years later, I was elected to the state senate. And for Steny Hoyer, more than 60 years later, the rest, as they say, is history. As Joe Biden decided about 2024, two top presidential campaign strategists read the tea leaves next. My answer is yes. My plan is to run for re-election. That's my expectation. Look, my intention, as I said to begin with, is that I would run again. But it's just an intention. But is it a firm decision? That I've run again, that remains to be seen. My guess is it'd be early next year we make that judgment. But it's my plan to do it now. Welcome back to State of the Union. To run or not to run, that is the question facing President Biden. And all of Washington is waiting for his decision. Joining me now are two veterans of presidential campaigns, Democratic strategist Liz Smith and Republican strategist David Urban. Happy New Year to both of you. Uh, okay, so Liz, you're the Democrat here. What do you make of the will here, won't he? Um, well, I think the expectation among every Democrat I speak to is that the president is going to run for re-election, and he has more than earned that right. Um, and what I think that the president is doing now is sort of getting his ducks in a row. He's got to figure out how he's dealing with a divided Congress um, and likely a mess of investigations coming his way from um, the Republican House. But also, how do you build a formidable campaign operation to win re-election in 2024? And the good news is that he is surrounded by some real pros. You know, Jen O'Malley Dillon is someone who doesn't have the highest profile, but is one of the most competent people in Democratic politics, was a key member of Barack Obama's 2012 campaign. And I think it's really fascinating because there's that old saying um, that history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. Mm -hmm. And in 2012, when I was director of rapid response for Barack Obama, we had a campaign where the incumbent president uh, was dealing with the fallout from a global recession, not of his own making, and a Republican Party that was increasingly captive to conspiracy theories Mm. spearheaded by Donald Trump. Look at what we're dealing with in yeah. 2024. Joe it's like Biden. that on steroids. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So let, is it let, going to rhyme? Let, let's a little more optimistic than I am. <laughs> let, about what? About, about a, a successful Biden okay. reelect, right? So I, I think Joe Biden has frozen the Democratic Party in, in, in time. And, and, and I think, look, there are a lot of Democratic voters from what I hear 
would like maybe somebody else to run. No one's thrilled about a potential Trump-Biden rematch, I don't think, in America. And I think Joe Biden, by not deciding, he said, I may, I may be in, I may not be in. He's really doing a great disservice to his party by not allowing the next generation of people to get prepared, right? So if you are a Josh Shapiro, my friend, or if you're a Westmore, if you're a, 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 a you know, He hasn't Whitmer, even been sworn no, in no, as I, governor I, I know, yet. I'm saying, I'm saying if you're the next generation of, of Democrats, right, you're kind of frozen. You can't get your campaign well, prepared. You can't move forward. And so I think Biden has to make a decision really quickly. Either he's in or he's out. And don't forget, when Joe Biden ran last time, it was the middle of COVID. He didn't campaign. He sat in his house in Delaware. He's going to be two years older. Presidential campaigns, let us know, are very grinding, very difficult yeah. to do for young people, let alone and, you know, someone who's 80 plus. You make a really important point about the other the field being frozen. Liz, as somebody who has started a presidential campaign from scratch, mm-hmm. is it important for people who are maybe considering running to start getting their ducks in a row just in case the president surprises everyone and says, I'm not running? Again, uh, so if you are someone who has run before, it is not that hard mm-hmm. to sort of you know, bring the old band back together and um, get a presidential campaign off the ground. If you are someone who hasn't run before, it is more of a challenge. But I go back to what I said initially, that the overwhelming expectation among mm-hmm. all Democrats is that the president's going to run for re-election. He's earned that right to run for re-election, and he will be a formidable candidate for re-election. I, I, I would just say this. He's a formidable candidate against Donald Trump, not against somebody else. I think Democrats' worst nightmare is if, what if it's Joe Biden versus a Ron DeSantis? It's a generational thing. I think that's not a winning ticket for Democrats. So, and, and I respectfully disagree with my new friend, David, <laughs> um, which is that uh, one thing that we saw in these midterms was that even though Donald Trump wasn't on the ballot, Trumpism was, and too many candidates continue to embrace Trumpism. And until they say, take a hike to Trumpism, it's going to be a really, really hard thing for them to sell to um, to the general electorate. And that's certainly something we saw in uh, David's home state of Pennsylvania. Well, let's talk because you brought well, that, up. That, that was Trump, not Trumpism. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, well, Trumpism lost in Pennsylvania. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because of Donald Trump. If he's gone, I think if, John, if Donald Trump's off the ticket, if he's not only, if Trumpism is, you know, I believe... The, the principles of Donald but Trump. But when you think about control. Trumpism right now, yeah. it's conspiracy theories. Well, yeah, but that's. But I'm, I'm making a distinction. Small government, less regulations, yeah. right? But that's I'm just a, being a Republican. Yeah. A Republican, right? But a little bit different flavor, secure border, things that a, a broader party, you know, working class conservatives. So, so the question is, because there is one person officially in the race, and that is Donald Trump. He did announce uh, before the end of the year. And so one of the questions is, will history repeat itself on the Republican side, to use your uh, your, your reference there, Liz, and that is that you have Donald Trump running and then you have a slew of other candidates who break up the vote and then Donald Trump comes out victorious without a huge majority. I had a conversation with Governor Chris Sununu of New Hampshire uh, towards the end of the year, and we talked about whether or not there is that kind of discussion going on among Republicans. One of the ways he could still win the nomination is one of the ways he won in 2016, which is there is a huge field of candidates and they uh, segment or fragment the voters. Mm -hmm. And then he takes the nomination with even, or he could even do less than 35%. Is there any conversation that is going on, should go on to say, in order to stop Donald Trump, we need to not all jump in. We need to pick somebody, the best candidate, and run that way? No, not, not, I think a lot of us are looking at, at governors that may run. And I think as governors, we all want to see a governor 
run and be successful. Should it? No, Should that happen? No, because it's up to the voters. But he also said that it is incumbent upon people who do end up getting in, he would not say he was one of them, but to say, if it's not, if we're not catching fire, we're out. We're not just going to stay in. Well, that, 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 that's a fair point, right? Because in, this last, in the 2016 primary, you saw people lingering 2 3%, 4%. So just enough to get into the debates, but not enough to ever do anything, not enough to ever really move the numbers. Look, unless you're in double digits, high double digits, you should probably you know, pack your bags and go home. But to get into the race, to, to become president, you know, I, I think if you're stepping in there, you're thinking you're going to win no matter what. You think there's some chance that somehow you're going to turn the corner. Look, Joe Biden, for the bulk of the race in, in 20, was not the leader. He was not running on the table. In my sense, from, from Governor Sununu and others who are thinking about it, people around them, are there's not a big rush right now to get in on the Republican side. Do you agree with that? Yeah, well, that's what we were seeing. And, you know, backstage, I was talking about that, that um, there are some advantages to getting in early, which is you get a massive influx of earned media. Um, But there's some disadvantages. And David would know this as a former advisor to Donald Trump is, do you want to be just on the um, other end of just nonstop attacks from Donald Trump? Because we saw that the Republicans in 2016 were completely unprepared um, to deal with those attacks. And they were all completely dissembled by them. And so one important thing for the Republicans who do enter this race is to um, figure out how they're going to deal with Donald Trump. And my advice would be, don't play his game, don't get into the gutter with him, and as much as possible, give him the stiff arm. Well, I, th- I think that's what you're saying now, right? You, 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 you see, in the, in the past few weeks, you've saw that, seen that happen with, um, with um, McConnell, with McCarthy, you know, when Trump does something, they don't react immediately, right? There's not every day they're going to respond to a tweet or respond. They're just kind of ignoring him, hoping that, you know, he goes away. Before I let you both go, I have to ask about the new plans that Democrats are talking about for their presidential primary or presidential contest uh, season. First uh, would be South Carolina, then Nevada and New Hampshire, then Georgia, then Michigan, which is obviously very different from what we have seen for decades Iowa caucus is first, then the New Hampshire, Nevada caucuses, South Carolina. You've been in the trenches in every one of these states. What do you think of the idea? Um, well, I, like a lot of Democrats, have some concerns with it. Um, I think it was really important um, as Democrats, if we talk about black voters as a backbone of our party, to move them up in the primary process. That was smart. But that didn't mean that we need to throw New Hampshire by the wayside, which essentially the DNC and Biden administration is doing. And, you know, you've been to New Hampshire. These are people who take the civic duty really, Mm -hmm. really seriously. Mm -hmm. It is a small state that anyone can get around with just one staffer and a sedan. And it's... Democrats argue it's also very white. It it is. But it it is also the only state in those early states that is still focused Mm -hmm. on old school retail politics. very true. And, And that type of politics is something that makes for a better... Candidates and better presidents. You sound like Governor Sununu. It weeds out. It separates the weed from the chaff. Yeah. yeah. You have to Guys, go to campaign. Thank you so much. I learned so much from you always. Great Thanks discussion. Great. And we'll be right back. It is the season for new beginnings. And whether you're relaxing at home or getting a kickstart on your resolutions, we want to send all of you our best wishes for a happy new year. Thank you so much for making State of the Union part of your week, and we look forward to 2023. The news continues next.
When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.